Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. And today I had an interview with Deb Klemperer, the head curator at the Potteries Museum in Stoke-on-Trent, and she shared with us what's been going on with this newest find at the Staffordshire Hoard. You might have heard how there was 81 new objects that were declared treasure by the coroner. So she's going to tell us a little bit about that process and what happened during that inquest and a little bit of what to expect going forward. So I hope you enjoy it, and here we go. Deb, can you tell us a little bit about what's been found? Yes, sure. This group of artifacts, about 90, went to the inquest on Friday the 4th of January. And your listeners may know about the very strange situation in Britain where coroners deal with sudden unexplained death and treasure. Which is Actually, would you mind <laughs> explaining a little bit about how that works? Because we haven't had anybody tell us about that. British law has got some pieces of it that are very, very old and 12th century legal precedent mean that Her Majesty's coroner assesses unexplained death and treasure. And Friday was the treasure inquest for these artifacts which were found on the same field as the Staffordshire Hoard. And so Her Majesty's coroner is briefed by all the experts and has to decide what he thinks this material is. Some of your listeners may remember that there was a strange law in Britain called Treasure Trove, which is actually still on the statute books. And in that, you had to always have a jury. So it was almost like a, it was an inquest with a jury. And the jury had to decide whether this ancient gold or silver artifact had been buried with the intent of recovery and whether we could trace the descendants of the person who buried it, which is incredibly complicated and well-nigh impossible if you've got an item which is two or 3,000 years old, thinking, well, who's the descendant of the person who buried this item? So it got very complicated. So the law was simplified in the 1990s into the law of treasure. And basically, any items over 300 years old, which are substantially gold or silver, can be treasure. And the coroner has the ruling on it. It sounds complicated, but once you start working it, it's quite simple. But a large number of fines that metal detectors make aren't protected by law, and we just require that people, out of the goodness of their hearts, report these items to the local museum. Can you explain why it's significant, why something's treasure versus not treasure? When the law was being revisited in the, during the 1990s and redrafted for the House of Commons and the House of Lords, I think the people drawing up the law felt they had to be pragmatic. In some countries, as you may know, in some European countries, no metal detecting is allowed, and everything that's old is protected in the ground. It would be very difficult to have a law like that in the UK, in, well, in England and Wales, and police it, because lots and lots of people go out detecting. I would reckon that the majority of old metal artifacts in England and Wales are actually found by detectors, not by archaeologists. So the law decided to focus on high-value items in terms of gold and silver and encourage people to report other finds that they made. So far, it's, it's actually led to an increase in reporting, and now you get mammoth reports for treasure across the England and Wales, and the reporting has got very much better because it's so much clearer that the coroner doesn't have to sit with a jury. Usually it's a few people in the court, so the coroner and assistant, and the expert witness explaining the material, the finder and the landowner, and press if they want to be there. It's quite good because you can ask people under oath about matters. So do coroners need to be experts in archaeology, or is it purely this object is clearly a lot of gold, so it must be treasure? No, coroners are usually from a legal background, and although the majority of their work is dealing with death and accidents and so on, they're not medical experts either. 
they take advice from professionals in an agreed format in order to reach their conclusions. It's very carefully done. So going back to the 90 items that went to the inquest on Friday last, on the 4th of January, not all of the items were declared treasure. So your listeners may have heard some of the news about these finds. There's been some more gold finds, silver as well. So what we seem to have are is the other cheap piece to the helmet fragments that we already hold, and that looks really exciting. So it's in a lovely cheap piece to match the one we already have, plus some silver foils with warriors and so on on it, rather like the ones we've already got, and some golden garnet pieces. There's some silver pieces with yellow inlay, that silver sulfide inlay, and it's very clear that it's a group of material that belongs with the hoard. But along with that, on Friday, there was some material which appears to be modern junk. By that, I mean artifacts, probably bits of pottery from the 1830s onwards, plus two items which are not gold or silver. They're the same date as the hoard. They're two copper alloy pieces. They're rather lovely with animal interlace design upon them. They're the same date as the hoard. They've got some silver gilt on them, but they're, they're basically base metal. They were found between 30 and 50 metres away from the hoard site, and so taking advice from experts describing what was found, the coroner found that those were not treasure. So those two items are not treasure. Copper alloy can be treasure if it's found associated with treasures. The thing that jumped out at me when you mentioned the copper items yeah. is that when we spoke earlier, when we spoke in November, you mentioned that there was a, a copper item found in the same field but wasn't part of the hoard. You That's didn't think right. it was part of the hoard. That piece is a part of what looks like a circular artifact, and it's copper alloy with a slight bit of silvering on it. It's got animal interlace ornament on it, and in the middle is a small blue glass stone. And the two copper alloy artifacts that have been found this time in this recent find look really like it. I don't think all three of them have been put together to see if they join to each other, but they're very, very similar. So either they're from the piece itself or they're a set, perhaps a set of fittings, but they're certainly different in character to the hoard and over the same date. And this is the most exciting thing that Kevin Leahy is this specialist who I've mentioned and he says this is clearly showing that Anglo-Saxons were visiting this site on a number of occasions and that it must have been a special place. It's no longer just the hoard. This is the most exciting thing. So it could have been a sacred place to place objects? We just don't know, but it seems like it could be, doesn't it? It's got other Saxon artifacts which are different in character to the main body of the hoard and they're further away in another part of the field. Very, very interesting. Do we know if they were placed at roughly the same time as the rest of the horde? We don't know that, no. But the character of this thing I've just described to you, this circular or semicircular piece with the animal interlace and copper alloy, matches quite closely an item of similar dates found in what's called Mound 2 at Sutton Hoo. Possibly this is some sort of safe, special place. There's no sign yet as to whether there were any features. The lie of the land is such that there's no new information from this recent work to tell us if there were more mounds in the field or if there were really mounds that were significant. So I'm wondering whether archaeologists will continue to do new work and look at that. Were the new finds found within the path of the curvilinear ditch? No, they were found quite a long way down the field. The piece that was found three years ago that's not connected with the hoard was found about 100 yards away from the main find spot, distinct enough and not, not with any spread. It can't have been spread by the plough. So... It's not something that's been moved away from the hoard by modern action. And these two other pieces appear to be similar in that 
we don't think they've been moved away by ploughing. But other than that, we yet don't know what this actually means. Now, you mentioned that they are similar in character to objects found at Sutton Hoo. Yeah. Do we know what they're similar to? I think it's similar similar to the disc that was, that was recovered. These latest finds really posed a lot more questions. I think that because there are pieces in, in the hoard group, which is slightly different to hoard material we've got already. In a way, Fred replowing the field has created some more questions. When all of this work, this recent work that we're talking about now, happened in November 2012, and it happened then because Fred, for the first time in four years, decided to plow the field. And he was very good. He discussed it with archaeologists and so on. He said, I'm going to do it then, and then they agreed with him when they were going to have people on the field. And he plowed more deeply than he had plowed before. And then, after he plowed, metal detectors supervised by professional archaeologists and archaeological field walkers, that's people who walk up and down staring intently at the ground to see what they can see and recover things like pottery and so on, went on the field. There was no further excavation. This latest project hasn't been an archaeological dig. It was recovering anything that might have been churned up through plowing. And it's very interesting that over 80 objects came out. It's quite incredible. It makes me think back to when we talked about what might have caused this find to be found, because Mm. my recollection is the field was gone over with a metal detector, nothing was found. Then Fred went and plowed it, and then Terry Herbert came out and he found some stuff, and then Fred plowed it again, and then we found some more stuff. And you mentioned last time we spoke that there's thought that maybe there's something to do with the soil that isn't conducive to metal detecting. Has there been any further thought on how to get around that, maybe do layered excavation or something like that? It may be that soil conditions and different detecting machines and the fact that the plough was turning up stuff that was perhaps fairly deeply buried is enough to produce these items because, if you remember, three and a half years ago, everyone thought that everything was out of the ground. Well, yeah, you you had the army out there with that gigantic (laughs) mine detector. So Strange, isn't it? It's really strange. The curse of the horde, or the blessing of the horde, whichever way you want to look at it. It's because it's got to go through all the treasure process again now. The way it seems to me, it it has to be one of two things. Either the soil doesn't allow for metal detecting, or Fred is out there secretly depositing objects to (laughs) keep interest in his field. It is really interesting. I've puzzled over it, but apparently, I mean, I'm not a metal detector user, and there's different sorts of machines which have got different strengths. Archaeological work as well, like geophysical surveying and ground probing radar, lots of things have gone over the field, not just metal detecting machines. And of course, archaeologists have dug trenches and examined the site closely. And field archaeologists have suggested that it's something to do with a mixture of soil conditions and the types of machine used. And I think when they had this latest campaign of metal detecting and survey and field walking, there were a number of trusted detectorists working on the field and they all had different machines. So maybe it's just because of that you've got a greater variety of technology there and some of them just came up trumps. If I had my druthers, I think I would be going through that entire field layer by layer at this point. Well, I'm sure there's going to be other work and I and Kevin probably will keep you posted on that, perhaps Stephen Dean as well. So let's talk a little bit about what's been found. You mentioned that there was the mate of the cheek piece, and you're using the term cheek piece. Does that mean that you've settled on the fact that this was a small and a little bit strange cheek piece? No, I'm using that as a sort of shorthand to describe it. It still hasn't been clearly defined, but as far as I understand it, it is a cheek piece. 
that, again, wait on the definitive statement once we've got the catalogue sorted. But the latest idea is it that it is a cheap piece. This latest one, if you've seen pictures on news sites and, mm-hmm. and so on, it's, it's a little mangled. It's more folded up than the piece we already have. But it does seem to be a match. I don't think they've been brought together yet. The artefacts, these 80 artefacts, they're all at the British Museum in London right now. And what will happen is a government department will commission several different independent specialists to value the items. Once those have been received, the Treasure Valuation Committee, who are a group of expert individuals, will meet at the British Museum and discuss the value, and they'll come to an agreement. Then we'll be given an overall value, and the museums, hopefully Birmingham and Stoke again, will go and attempt to acquire these pieces. The finder and the landowner will all agree whether they think the value is okay. And once that is, we then have four months to raise the money. So I'll keep you posted on that one. And what's interesting, Jamie, is that the finder in this instance is not not the metal detectors who've been on the field recently, not the archaeologist walking over, field walking, but Terry Herbert again, even though he wasn't involved. Is it because Terry was the original finder, so it's still connected to him? Part of the ruling on Friday was for the coroner to decide if he thought it was part of the same find and what the likely outcome was. And he did, the coroner did say that he thought that the reward, because it's not actually a purchase as such, it's a reward for finding, would be split as last time between Fred Johnson, the farmer, and Terry Herbert, the original finder of the Staffordshire Hall. Terry has to be one of the luckiest metal detectors in the world. (laughs) (laughs) He surely does. I I believe this time he was just leaning on the fence looking over watching him, so he's done very well for leaning on the fence watching. And in the wording of the act, archaeologists cannot claim the reward anyway. We just do it for the love of it. (laughs) So uh, any gold or silver found during the course of an archaeological excavation, the finder... The digger cannot claim the reward. What if the archaeologist is out there in, in his or her free time? Are you still oh, barred? Gosh, that sounds so complicated. So I looked at, at some of the photos that have been released online, and one of the things that jumped right out at me was it looks like there's yet another cross. That's a really interesting piece. If you look at the photographs, it's difficult to see because it's not a very good scale with them, but it's quite small and it looks rather flat, doesn't it? Again, it hasn't been brought next to the pendant cross we already have. I think it's actually a fitting rather than something that someone would wear around, around their neck. So maybe a fitting from something and not a pendant cross. Yeah, it's fascinating because we keep on finding these Christian objects in the last kingdom to hold on to paganism. The whole hoard, including these items that have just been found, appears to have gone into the ground after about 675 AD, which is 20 years after the last great pagan warrior King Penda died. So why are they there? Why is that, that mix, why is there that mix of materials? You've got all the male warrior bling from at least 90 swords, we've got 90 sword ponders, and various accoutrements, which may be uh, Christian regalia, possession crosses, perhaps pieces from shrines and so on. And why is that mixed there? I'm quite sure that the public are thinking, well, they should have all the answers by now. But actually, even three and a half years down the line from the first group of finds, it's still early days. We've actually fast-tracked a lot of the work, and we're trying to keep the public informed as we go. And I think perhaps there must be some level of impatience. Because we're doing it like this, people begin to realize it does take a long time 
to come to some of the conclusions. Well, uh, something for my listeners to keep in mind is that we're still learning things about Sutton Hoo, and that was found nearly 100 years ago at this point. Well, the excavation happened, I think it was just at the beginning of the war that got going, didn't it, 1939. The report didn't come out for nearly 40 years. This won't take as long as that, but we're not trying to do an all-singing, all-dancing definitive report. It's going to be a catalogue of the objects, and we point us towards other research that could be done, and that will really focus people's minds. So there'll be a, a catalogue of drawings and photographs and x-rays. And then you can imagine there'll be specialists who absolutely love swords who'll go through all the, all the groupings to do with the swords. There'll be people who want to look at where the garnets are from. There'll be people who are looking at gold working. And all of these people then can, once they've got the catalogue, can do that sort of work. And it means that the catalogue comes out more quickly and with the internet, then all these other researchers can get their results out, their further researches out fairly quickly. So the end result is, is good for us all. It's information reasonably quickly. It's going to change everything, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think so as well. It's very interesting to see how all sorts of people are responding to it, not just experts, reenactors, people who make replica weapons and reenactors and so on. Everyone's looking avidly at this material. And of course, you've probably seen this, that once you start promising that you're going to give out information, and you do, people want more. They want more than you can give. And that's because it's the enthusiasm. So you, you try and keep the enthusiasm going and explaining you know, what we're doing as we're going along. Well, in the meantime, until the catalog comes out, Deb has agreed to keep us apprised of what's happening. I hope you enjoyed listening to the update on what happened at the inquest and the new 81 objects that have come out of Fred Johnson's field. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach me at Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash britishhistory. And we're on Twitter. Just go to at britishpodcast. And as always, you can join the forums. Just go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com, click on Get Involved, and click Forums. All right, thanks for listening. <laughs>